Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Happy birthday, everyone. I really hate to, uh, I really hate to kill all the conversations. Uh, but the timer for the mingle is over, and I'm a firstborn, so I follow the freaking rules. And since I have the mic, we're all going to follow the rules together. little game called... Oh, man. I was <laughs> little game called obedience. <laughs> I, got, I got like nine hours of sleep last night. I actually ate breakfast, which I don't normally do on Sundays. So my shoulders feel very light today, and I've got, um, the Lord has given me just an insane word, and I don't say that for my own, because I think I'm a good preacher or anything. It's because, it's because God wants to say something powerful to all of us today, okay? Now, if you don't know me, my name is Phil Schaefer. I'm the worship pastor here, and I get to preach occasionally. Yeah, thank you. One fan. Good. <laughs> Okay, okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And the obligatory cheer from mom. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm just excited to be here today. We're, we're, um, we just finished Canopy two weeks ago after the Sela, or sorry, before the Sela. Whew, I better slow down. I'm already off track. Um, and, and in that series, we talked about what it's like to be under the canopy of God's favor and protection versus outside the canopy. Now, the question arises then, well, why would anybody leave if it's so great? Okay? The thing is, you don't just wake up one day and, like, leap all the way outside the canopy. You drift to the edge over a very long period of time until you end up outside the canopy, and you probably won't even realize it. Okay, so we're going to start a new series today called Drift, and the inspiration came from two places. One is Hebrews 2.1, which says, very simply, we must pay attention all the more to what we have just heard. Okay, so pay attention to what we just heard, canopy, right, those four weeks, so that we do not drift away. And the other part of the inspiration came from a quote uh, by Nate Johnston. We, we posted it on social media earlier this week, but I'm just going to he posted this on his social media like months ago, okay, and before the teaching team even uh, met about this quarter. And I'm just going to read a, a little bit of it again because it's, it matches perfectly with where I'm going today. Nate Johnson said, it's choosing safe and tidy and protecting reputation over embracing the mess and learning from God's visitation. Who wants to learn from God's visitation? Anybody? Yeah. And then the other part, it'll still have the form and function of something God breathed. So church can still look like church. It can still look like it has all the elements of something God breathed, but the breath is left. And that's a pretty scary place to be. Now, Heather closed out Canopy by talking about Samuel and the Israelites and how they were asking for a king. Uh, and no prior discussion or prior planning at all, the Lord led me months ago before her, her message was even, like, probably formed at all, uh, to start with King Saul and cover the first four kings of Israel. And so it's just insane how, like, for the 10 millionth time, Holy Spirit just had two series back-to-back, -back, and the, the, the last message of that one and the first message of this one are literally just that perfectly, like, transition connected. They just melt together. So this might feel like week five of Canopy. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Week one, week five, it doesn't matter. Now, um, we need to take a trip back to my childhood, okay, back to the 90s. Anybody growing up, Andrew, go ahead and put it up there. Anybody growing up in the 90s in the church, yeah, yes, I'm so, I'm, oh, I'm so happy. I'm so happy right now. I wasn't sure how the response was going to be. So the NIV New Adventure Bible with the holographic cover. Just keep that bad boy up there for a while. We just got to bask in the glory of that thing. So this was my first, I believe it was my first Bible. 
or it was the first one I read um, <laughs> when I was when I was little. And mom and dad, I am about to hate on this Bible a little bit, but I don't hold anything against you. In fact, since Ike was so mushy about you guys on Father's Day, I got to try to at least keep pace with him. So I, I want to publicly honor you for sitting me down in the front row of of Morton Bible Church when I was with this Bible in my lap. Lighten up the whole church, by the way. <laughs> when I was just old enough to read and follow along with the preacher because that, that one decision put me on a trajectory uh, to hear. It, it, it set up a bunch of uh, 10,000 more little decisions in the right direction to be here. Um, and it's in that way that you get to stand on your shoulders today, and so I just want to publicly honor you for that. Holographic Bible. And in the, in the middle of this Bible, there was... You can take it down now, it's fine. In the middle of the Bible, there was this chart with all the names of the kings of Israel and Judah, and next to their names, it had like a rating system. It was just like good or bad. And that's fine for like a kid's Bible, but... Um, it's not good enough for like an adult Bible, okay? So, because in my mind, it oversimplified the narrative because I kind of saw like a stock market chart. It was like good, bad, bad, good, bad. And there was like these big step changes every time. But that's not really how it happened. There was actually drifting from one king to the next, at least when we look at the first four kings. After a while, it's just kind of, it's, it's, it's totally gone. But the first four kings, there's very, it's slow drifting over like a hundred years. In fact, we're going to cover like a hundred years of Israelite history in hopefully 40 minutes. And so I can't possibly read all the passages. I'm going to do my best to at least give you like chapters to read so you can like try to, you can like double check me to see if I I'm telling you the truth. And, and if I'm not, if I miss something, please come talk to me. I'd love to have a discussion with you. Um, seriously, I, I love talking about this stuff. It never gets old. Um, but the king, there was drifting from one king to the next, and you better believe the people are going to follow, right? And so before we get into the text, I want I to give you three quick things that, about drifting that you're going to see play out today and even probably even throughout the rest of this series. Okay, so number one, number one. Drifting can be generational, so you better cut it off, okay? Drifting can be generational. Number two, drifting is so subtle, we already kind of talked about this, it's almost imperceptible, almost. And number three, the scariest one, drifting will feel right to you even though everyone else sees foolishness, okay? Drifting will feel so right to you but the outside observer will see foolishness. So when we talk about the kings drifting, first we have to dis like establish from what. Okay, where, where, so where's the baseline that they started to drift from? And to do that, we got to go back to the law. 400 years before King Saul, Moses gets the law. Okay, and in Deuteronomy 7... The first few verses, I'm just going to paraphrase this. God says, okay, you're going to the promised land, and when you get there, you're going to run into these pagan tribes, and you're supposed to kill all of them. I know it's hard to hear in 2022. you got to kill all of them. No deals, no alliances. Definitely don't intermarry with them because, because the foreign women will turn the hearts of the sons away from Yahweh. Now, this is not an anti-women verse or message. If anything, this is telling you the power that women actually have and the responsibility that men have to have backbones and first submit to and follow the Lord and then lead their family. And aren't you thankful to be in a place where there's so many strong men that already walk this out? Okay. So it's not an anti-woman thing. The hearts of the sons will be turned away by the foreign women. Now, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Go ahead and put that up there on the screen. When, when, 
when Samuel and the Israelites are talking about adding a king, it's kind of as an, it's kind of viewed as a negative thing, and it is because it's not God's best. But the thing is, 400 years earlier, God told them this would happen, and in fact, He told them He was going to be okay with it. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So God's prophesying to him. He's like, hey, you're going to get there, and eventually you're going to ask me for a king. And guess what? Even though it's not ideal, I'm going to go ahead and give one to you, and I'm going to choose him. And that king is going to have to follow all of the law just like everybody else, and then he gets three extra ones. Not that hard. Verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Okay, this isn't just about horses, this is about Egypt. You're never going back that way again. Keep that in mind because Egypt's going to return here in a little bit. Verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Now, in verse 7, we already heard about don't intermarry with the foreign women. This is talking about Hebrew women. Just period, don't have, the king should not have many wives. Okay? Lest his heart turn away. And then he shall not acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Say so three extra rules for the kings. It's not that hard. So with that, let's go to the first king, King Saul. Saul became king in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And at first it goes pretty well wins some battles, it's going, it's going well. But in chapter 13, Saul starts to drift. The Philistines are gathering for battle, and Israel is outnumbered. And in 1 Samuel 13, verse 8, we read, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring, bring the burnt offering here to me and, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw the people were scattering from me and you didn't come within the days appointed and the Philistines were mustered at Michmash and I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. I don't, I don't want to fight without seeking the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering and Samuel said to Saul, you have done, what's that word? Foolishly. Remember point number three? Think back to that Nate Johnson quote, choosing safe and tidy and protecting reputation. Isn't that what Saul did? And then it'll have the form and function of something God breathed, but the breath is left. Saul performed those sacrifices perfectly. He had seen it done his whole life. That church service was perfect, okay? He said all the right prayers in the right order, all the right songs, all the right sacrifices. The kids' ministry was awesome. And, and Hebrew church was awesome because they were always smoking meat. So, like, it was, this was an awesome church service. He got 99 out of 100. He did one thing wrong. It wasn't his job to be the prophet. It was his job to be the king and carry out the word from the Lord that the Lord gave to the prophet. He got one thing wrong. And in the grand scheme of things, that's a tiny drift. Tiny drift, but it'll have grave consequences. Later on in chapter 15, Saul is asked to completely destroy the Amalekites from the face of the earth. Remember Deuteronomy? 400 years earlier, the Israelites are still trying to obey that command from 400 years ago. you think they would have figured it out by now. Destroy all the people, all the property, no plunder, no sacrifices. Just destroy everything and move on. And Saul drifts again. The first time he did one thing wrong, now he does four things wrong. While at the same time he's convinced he's doing even more right than the last time. Like, I get extra credit this time. Before he was just trying to survive. I, I just, I, did, I had no other choice. I, I forced myself. And now, if you read chapter 15, I don't have time. I wish I had time, but... 
he, when Samuel comes, he wants to be praised for his increasing disobedience because in his mind, it's actually increasing righteousness. It's extra credit righteousness in his own mind. How insane is that? He didn't kill the king of the Amalekites like he was supposed to. He kept the best plunder for sacrifices, even though there wasn't supposed to be a sacrifice. Then he starts offering a sacrifice again. And guess who follows him? The people. The people start offering sacrifices too. Because, you know, more is better, right? They weren't, they weren't, they weren't sticking it to Yahweh. More worship is better. More sacrifices, better. We saved the best plunder for you, Yahweh. Look at the extra credit we get. And in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel says one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Hey, Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. This, what, this is what goes on in your mind when you start to drift. It feels like you're getting further and further under the canopy. Look how, look how righteous I am. Look how, look how holy, look how close to God I'm getting. It feels like that's what you're doing even though you're drifting further away. And it feels so right that you're completely shocked when you're not universally praised for your own version of righteousness. Hello, 2022. We're not seeing that at all in our culture, are we? And you have no idea that everyone else sees complete foolishness. And we know that because of this, the kingdom is ripped out of Saul's legacy and it's given to David. And David is the greatest king that Israel ever had. Man after God's own heart. Yes, we, the Bathsheba thing wasn't great. And the census thing wasn't great. But he was the greatest king of Israel and no one's going to debate that. End of story. However, it, should, it might be interesting for you to know that there were some things that David drifted further away than Saul. There were some things that David did that were against the law that Saul did not do. Still the better king than Saul. Still a better king, still a man for God's own heart. But there was drifting from Saul to David. Let's talk about it. Remember, Deuteronomy says don't make any deals with the tribes around you. And it's really hard to do that if you just destroy them 400 years earlier and just get the job done then. It's almost as if if we obey the Lord right here, right now, with the one thing that he has in front of us right now, that it actually sets us up for, for easier obedience down the road. In fact, if we obey him completely, then we might just completely avoid a scenario in the future where obedience is even required in the first place, right? Because the decision point, it just isn't there. If we destroyed them 400 years earlier, then David doesn't even have to worry about obeying the thing about not making alliances. It's just not an option. Now, the text doesn't tell us that Saul ever employed foreign mercenaries. His army was just Hebrew warriors. But David employed a bunch of foreign mercenaries from the tribes around him that were supposed to have been destroyed 400 years earlier. That's, that's drifting from Saul to David. And you think, ah, what a big deal. Not a big deal. The Hittites specifically are listed in Deuteronomy as to have been completely destroyed. David employed a bunch of Hittites in his army. In fact, Uriah the Hittite was one of the 37 mighty men, one of the greatest warriors David ever had, served him faithfully, got no problem with it on paper, except the fact that he was a Hittite. And who was his wife? Bathsheba. So, interest, now, all part of God's plan, don't email me about God's sovereignty and all that stuff. But, interesting thought experiment. What if the Hittites had been destroyed 400 years earlier? And Uriah is not even around. Might have set up David for some easier obedience. Generational drifting. Deuteronomy also says, make sure your kings don't have many wives. Well, Saul had one wife and one concubine, and I'm not going to get into the difference. They're wives. Okay, so Saul had two. So just no more concubines for the rest of the message. It's just wives. If you've got babies with a mom, with a woman, it's a wife, okay? It's just, so Saul had two wives. 
David had somewhere between 7 and 18, depending on what scholar and text you, you look at. The, the, the Bible isn't 100% clear on how many wives David had. Now, Saul had, Saul had two Hebrew wives. David had between 7 and 18 Hebrew wives. So that's good. We're, no foreign women, right? We're, we're good. But 7 to 18, that's, that's feels like maybe a few too many. Like, so now, now, again, the text never says David was wrong. It never said he had too many, but the text never commends him for that either. And there's a bunch of places in the Bible, if you read it from cover to cover, when a person does something commendable, the, the text will often say, and this pleased the Lord, or the Lord counted this as righteousness. So that omission from the text, that lack of commendation on David's part to have many wives and many children, I think that matters. Remember, I, I say this all the time. It matters what it's, the text says. It also matters what it doesn't say. Now think about this. Solomon was chosen as the heir very early on, like when he was a baby. But Solomon wasn't even remotely the firstborn. So there was a bunch of wives and a bunch of kids at that point. So th and, and think about the controversy. Everybody knew the story. It's not like this was just a secret, okay, with Bathsheba. So you don't think that was going to cause drama with the other wives and the other children? What about the firstborn son? He was probably a rock star, for all we know. He's like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be king. Now, God, hey, God said Solomon was going to be king. Okay, I'm not disagreeing with God on this. But... Read through, like, can we just agree that all the wives and all the children was, like, not beneficial? Can we at least agree it wasn't beneficial? Just read through David's life. There was rape and incest with his son Amnon and his daughter Tamar. That scenario turned into Absalom, his other son, taking the kingdom away from him for several years. And then at the very end of his life, when Solomon's about to be crowned king, another son, Adonijah, tries to take the kingdom away from Solomon. So can we at least agree that it wasn't beneficial for David to have all the wives and all the children? It wasn't beneficial for him. It wasn't beneficial for his own family. And it wasn't beneficial for the people of Israel to have to go through all of that. Drifting from Saul to David. And it's generational drifting. I don't care that they weren't related. One king to the next. That brings us to Solomon. 1 Kings 3, verse 1 and 2. This is the very beginning of Solomon's reign. Solomon intermarried with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he took the daughter of Pharaoh and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his house the house of Yahweh, so remember Solomon's building the temple, and the walls of Jerusalem all around. And let's check in with the people because the people get brought up in verse 2. But the people were sacrificing on high places for the house, for the name of Yahweh had not yet been built in those days. The name of Yahweh, that's this is called name theology. So whenever you see that phrase, that is, a, that is a translation from Hebrew into English. That's a Hebrew way of saying the manifest presence of Yahweh, like the cloud in the Holy of Holies part of Yahweh, okay? That's a very big deal. So, Solomon, Solomon marries a foreign woman, oddly enough, an Egyptian. Interesting that Egypt is starting to make a comeback, and you're not supposed to return that way, okay? And the people are sacrificing in high places, and that's against the law. And you might say, what are you talking about? Isn't more worship better? Well, Deuteronomy 12. Remember, 400 years earlier, Moses is telling the people, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose, remember God's calling the shots here, at least he's trying to, to make his name dwell there, his manifest presence dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. Burnt offerings, sacrifices, contributions, vow offerings, everything. And then skip to verse 13. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see. It was the tabernacle. That was it. 
You, you do it just right there. And then once the temple was built, you do it there. Okay? Now, the people were sacrificed on the high places. They were still worshiping Yahweh. Remember Saul? Remember Saul? Drifting from Saul to the people? They were still singing all the Christian songs. Kids' ministry was awesome. The preaching was good. The welcome team was good. But they were doing it in the wrong place. And again, they still had the tabernacle, the temples being built. Like they, they should have been like, they could see it. This gold building coming up out of the middle of the city. Like, oh man, isn't that like, like 307 Oak Street? Like, man, it's going to be so awesome when we have church there. Right? But they chose laziness and impatience. And I know it wasn't going through their heads like, I'm going to be impatient today. I'm going to be lazy today. I'm going to stick it to Yahweh and I'm going to worship wherever I want. That's not what they were doing. Hey, more worship is better. More sacrifices are better. Let's, let's spread the worship of Yahweh all throughout the land. Heck, we might even get close enough to the border with our enemies. They'll see what we're doing. They might even get saved. More is better, right? More worship is better, right? No. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. The law didn't allow this. It sounds good to us. It's kind of hard for us to relate because under the new covenant, we can worship wherever we want and we should worship wherever we want. But that's not the covenant they had. They had the law first. They had to follow the law. Worship in one place. Remember, it'll have the form and function of something God breathed, but the breath of God's not there. So the obedience brings the breath of God. Only two people heard it. Obedience brings the breath of God. Obedience brings the presence of God. Not more worship, more songs. And they might be Bethel songs and Hillsong United. They might be the best worship songs of all time. More worship songs does not equal the presence of God. Obedience equals the presence of God. That's it. That's it. There's one rule. Obedience brings the presence of God. That is it. And after decades of this behavior, Solomon, he ruled for 40 years. He adds not just one foreign wife, many wives. Over the course of his 40-year reign, he had many foreign wives. David had foreign mercenaries. Solomon had foreign wives. Drifting. Okay, David probably had a few too many wives. Solomon had a thousand. Can we agree that's too many? And I'm sure it was going through Solomon's head, right? Like he wasn't like, I can do whatever I want, Yahweh. Screw you. No. He was, even though he wasn't supposed to, making alliances. He was keeping the peace. He, was, he had 40 years of peace during his reign. Isn't that a good thing? No fighting for the people of Yahweh. Rest for the people of Yahweh. Isn't that a good thing? The, the kingdom spread. The height of Israelites' territory was during Solomon's reign. Okay? Spreading the worship of Yahweh throughout the Middle East, right? It's a good thing. More is better, right? I mean, all this increasing influence all the tribute coming in, gold and silver. Hey, we're making this temple. Look how all the gold. For your glory, Yahweh, right? Look how awesome the church is. How could God say no to all that good stuff? Well, obedience is better than sacrifice. And after decades of this kind of behavior, 40 years, Solomon not just, doesn't just marry the foreign women. He comes into alignment with their foreign gods. And we all know that those foreign gods are not just statues, they're real demonic beings with real power trying to exert influence over the physical realm. 1 Kings 11. Now Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people, you shall not enter into marriage with them, for they're going to turn your heart away. And what does that last part say? Solomon clung to those in love. Pause right there. Okay? He didn't just dip his toe in the water of marrying foreign women. 
he dove in. But it took 40 years to get to that point. Drifting over a long period of time. Verse 5, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as, his, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place or a temple or a shrine, if you will, for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites and the spirit behind abortion and child sacrifice. Solomon came into alignment with that spirit. On a mountain east of Jerusalem, so like in the same area code, as the temple for Yahweh. And that sounds like, oh, now he's fallen off a cliff. What do you mean drifting? Well, he built all this stuff for his wives to worship at. You know, because a thousand women, you got to try to keep them all happy. And, yeah, and then he's, and then he starts to dip his toe in that pagan worship. He didn't jump all the way in. The text would have said if he was sacrificing children to Molech, it would have said that. So he worshipped these foreign gods in the same way that he worshipped Yahweh. So he got like the Hillsong United song, but not not right at Yahweh. It's kind of over here. It's, there's actually drifting. It's not just like he fell off a cliff, and it took 40 years to get to that point. And then 1 Kings 11.9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And why is that last part in there? Well, it's in there for us. It's in there for us because God didn't want us in 2022 to get into this mindset of, well, if God just, if I had just seen the feeding of the 5,000, if, if, if God had just provided that ram caught in the, in the reeds when I was about to sacrifice my child, if, I just, if he just appeared to me in a dream, if, he had just, if I could have just seen the storm calmed on the Sea of Galilee, if I just saw Jesus rise from the dead, it would be so much easier for me to obey and believe and trust him all the time. God appeared to Solomon twice. And like a genie, gave Solomon exactly what he asked for, which was all the wisdom in the world. God made Solomon the wisest man that has ever lived. But all the wisdom in the world is useless, completely useless, if you disobey. Solomon disobeyed and he drifted. Don't you ever get it twisted that if somehow you see God do a miracle, that all of a sudden you are just going to follow him all the time. Now we have Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Right after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits like immediately. 1 Kings 12. So the, the tribe of Judah and the city of Jerusalem stay with Solomon's son Rehoboam and the rest of the tribes and the rest of the land kind of follow this other man, Jeroboam. And we're going to focus on Jeroboam first. We'll catch Rehoboam at the very end. So Jeroboam immediately acts out of fear that the people will leave him. Remember King Saul? Generational drifting, okay? Because he doesn't have Jerusalem where the temple is. And he's like, he wakes up one day and he's like, wait a minute, the people, are, they're just going to go back to Jerusalem and start worshiping Yahweh, only Yahweh and only at the temple. Which is totally insane because for the last 40 plus years, they hadn't been doing that. They had been worshiping Yahweh on all the high places, Right? This is what happens. Your brain breaks when you start to drift. The people had totally forsaken the law, but Jeroboam convinces himself that the people are just going to suddenly tomorrow go right back to Jerusalem. So the answer, of course, is not to call the people to repent or do anything valuable. It's double down on foolishness. So he provides two golden calves. When was the last time we had golden calves? Exodus, right? And when he presents these golden calves to the people, he literally quotes the words of Aaron from Exodus 32. Here are your Elohim, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He quoted Exodus. You weren't supposed to go back that way. 
Think about how full circle we just came. Jeroboam just forgets to, and the speech stops there. So he forgot to mention the whole like 40 years of wandering in the wilderness type of thing and a whole generation of people died. You know, and then he made temples. He wanted to spread out. It's like Rehoboam has one temple for Yahweh. I'm going to have two because I have two golden calves. So he put one golden calf in a small temple in Bethel and one in Dan. Bethel. Bethel used to be called Luz. And then when Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, Jacob named that place Bethel, house of God, which is a very ironic term for it at this point because it's not a house of God anymore. And then Dan. Dan means God is my judge, which is very convenient and ironic because there's about to be some judgment for Jeroboam. So, also, Jeroboam invented a religious feast, just another one. And he started appointing priests from all the tribes of Israel, both of those things against the law. So, in, in 1 Kings 13, the man of, a man of God or a prophet comes to Bethel where Jeroboam is. He's about ready to offer like sacrifices and incense on this altar to one of the golden calves. And the man of God brings a word of judgment for the altar. Not Jeroboam directly. Okay, what does the text say? What does it not say? A judgment on the altar. 1 Kings 13, 3. The man of God, he gave a sign on that day saying, this is the sign that Yahweh has predetermined. Look, this altar will be torn apart and the ashes that are on it will be poured out. It happened at the moment the king, the king, Jeroboam, heard the word of the man of God that he cried out against the altar in Bethel. Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. But his hand which he stretched out to him was paralyzed, just like this. And he was not able to draw it back into himself. Then the altar was torn apart and the ashes from the altar poured out according to the sign which the man of God had announced by the word of Yahweh. The man of God was condemning the system of Jeroboam, not the person of Jeroboam. The system of Jeroboam, the word of Jeroboam. Is any, are, amen, anyone? The word of Jeroboam. Remember, we do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against real demonic beings trying to influence the physical realm. Now, Jeroboam could have repented right there, and all would have been forgiven. But he didn't. Jeroboam fiercely protected his manufactured word with his manufactured authority. So when his word was at risk of being destroyed, he reached out and his hand was paralyzed. Why would God do that? Because a king's hand was a sign of his authority. Nope, I'm, this is my house. This is not your authority. This is my authority. Your authority is frozen. By paralyzing his hand, God was paralyzing his authority. And the very next moment, the altar was destroyed and Jeroboam's word was destroyed. So when your word comes against the word of Yahweh, guess what? Your word will be defeated and your authority will be removed from you. So, the question becomes, how do you know if it's your word or the word of the Lord? What's your source material? Is there any fear in the equation? Because fear is not from the Lord. Are you grasping or manufacturing authority and influence? Now, I know none of you are trying to be king or president. But are you, are you trying to increase your influence instead of just let God give it to you in due time? Are you in community with others that are operating in fear and trying to manufacture authority and influence too? Because guess what? You're just going to follow them. You're just going to drift after them. Oh, I'm just being cautious. Now nah, you're afraid. I mean, I, I just, I feel a little bit uncomfortable. I'm just, I'm just kind of testing. You're afraid. Let's keep reading. 1 Kings 13, 6. Then the king responded and said to the man of God, this is totally insane. Please entreat the favor of Yahweh, your God. 
and pray for me that my hand may return to me. No repentance, no sorry, no nothing. Just fix it. So the man of God entreated the face of Yahweh, and the hand of the king was returned to him as it was in the beginning. God's so, God's so evil. How can a loving God let bad things happen to good people? Well, Jeroboam didn't even say sorry. He could have said sorry and not meant it. He didn't even do that. And God healed his hand anyway. Sounds like an awfully loving God to me. Jeroboam doesn't repent. He doesn't acknowledge Yahweh in any way, and yet God restores his hand. And the man of God leaves, and immediately Jeroboam continues his sin. 1 Kings 13, 33. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but he returned and made priests for all the high places and people from all walks of life. He filled his hand, the one that had just been paralyzed. He filled his hand. The Hebrew is miliad, which means ordain or invest. Think about how strong that language is. He filled his hand with all his desire and became one of the priests of the high places himself. There's just no rules anymore. The king can be the priest now. Remember, remember Saul? Oh, I forced myself to be the priest. Jeroboam's like, nope, I'm the priest now. Generational drifting. Verse 34, this matter became sin in the house of Jeroboam to make it disappear and to destroy it from the surface of the earth. First, the altar was at risk. It was just the altar that was at risk. Jeroboam had a way out, but he said no. So now his legacy was at risk. The same judgment that was reserved for the pagan tribes in Deuteronomy was now being levied against Jeroboam. And right after this, Jeroboam's son and heir becomes sick. So he triples down on foolishness. He disguises his wife when she goes to manufacture favor with a blind prophet. Guys, this is plain God. This is the end. This is plain God when you try to manufacture your own authority and manufacture your own favor. And your brain breaks to the point where you try to disguise your wife on the way to a blind prophet. Like, when you drift that far outside the canopy and God's authority, your only option is to manufacture your own authority and your own favor, and it doesn't go well. First Kings 14, verse 5, Then Yahweh said to Ahijah, Look, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to seek a word from you about her son, for he is ill. Thus and so you shall say to her, When she comes, she will be disguising herself. Okay? You can't trick God. In verse 6, it happened at that moment that Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps coming through the doorway, and he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why are you making yourself unrecognizable? I have been sent a hard message for you. <laughs> yeah. And the summary of that word is, your son's going to die, and Jeroboam's legacy is over. Let's check in with Rehoboam. I know I said the first four kings, but the kingdom split, so I'm just saying four. It's okay. End of 1 Kings ch chapter 14. 1 Kings 14, verse 21. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. He was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which from all the tribes of Israel Yahweh chose to place his name, his manifest presence. We need to pause there because... Everything fell apart over the last 100 years. Guess who's not leaving? Yahweh's not leaving. I put my name here and I'm staying. You might drift away from me, but I certainly am never going to drift away from you. I don't care how bad it gets. I don't care how far you're going to run. I'm staying right here. You can reject me if you want. I'm staying right here. My name is staying right here. Even if no one's worshiping me in the city, my name is staying right here. In the name of the mother, Rehoboam's mother, one of Solomon's wives, was Naamah the Ammonitess. The heir that Solomon chose descended from an Ammonite who worshipped Molech, the spirit behind child sacrifice and abortion. You want to talk about drifting, folks? Let's see how it goes. Doesn't go well, does it? But Judah did evil in the eyes of Yahweh, and they annoyed, annoyed him. I don't think I ever want to annoy God. And they annoyed him. 
more than their fathers did with their sins that they had committed. They also built for themselves high places and stone pillars and sacred poles, on not just on the high hills, under every green tree. There were also male shrine prostitutes in the land. I will not apologize for reading that verse. There were also male shrine prostitutes in the land, and they did according to all the abominations of the nations, which Yahweh had driven out from before the Israelites. How insane do you have to be to worship a God that had been defeated by Yahweh? You reject the one that won for the one that lost. Everywhere was a place of worship now. Nothing was sacred. The people are literally doing everything that the pagan religions around them had done. So as I wrap this up, I just want to put like a score, I call it a scoreboard, just to help crystallize this for you guys. To see the drifting. Go ahead and put that second to last slide up. So Saul. Saul had two Hebrew wives no foreign wives, no foreign mercenaries. Pretty good record so far. Some unlawful sacrifices to Yahweh. Then drifting to David, seven to 18 Hebrew wives, but no foreign ones, but a lot of foreign mercenaries. Well, but no unlawful sacrifices to Yahweh. So pretty good. Solomon, a thousand wives, many of them foreign, some pagan sacrifices, and the people start to worship Yahweh on many high places. See how, see how the people are trailing the kings, but they catch up. And then Jeroboam and Rehoboam, we just covered it. The golden calves, anyone can be a priest, complete pagan worship, cult prostitutes. I mean, but, but Phil, I'm... I'm I'm not doing any of that stuff. Yeah, I know. I know you're not. Remember 100 years earlier when they asked for a king? Yahweh, we need a king to lead us into battle. I, I know you're awesome, but like we need a, a human king to lead us into battle. But don't worry, we'll still follow you. We'll still follow you. And by the fourth king, they are in full-blown pagan worship. I know you're not sacrificing children or offering incense to Asherah or all that stuff. But let's put up another scoreboard. Let's make it a little more personal. Are you, which one, which king are you? Are you Saul? Are you assuming a role that isn't meant for you? Are you impatient? Maybe you're going after a role that's meant for you, but the timing isn't right yet. You're not letting God arrange it. Are you trying to protect your reputation? I'm not talking about like in the public eye or on Instagram. I'm talking like when you're just living life with people and discussing things and things come up and some constructive criticism may just glance in your direction. Are you deflecting? Are you blaming somebody else? Not, no, not, not blame. I didn't mean blame. Just, 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 you know, just kind of redirect. I don't want to use such a strong word like blame. Like, are you, like, redirecting the conversation to someone else that your reputation is preserved? Or, like, David, is there anything in your life that's maybe a little bit too much? Can't, maybe you can't call it a sin, but it's just not beneficial. Or Solomon, is there anything foreign that you're allowing in that's starting to take over? Is there anything that's in the wrong place? Is there any worship that's going in the wrong direction? Or like Jeroboam and Rehoboam, are you full-blown playing God and manufacturing your own authority and your own favor? We're going to keep this slide up for a little bit. I want you to stand on your feet. You can bow your heads, close your eyes. If you need to look at the screen and study it a little bit more, you can do that. Jesus. 
open our eyes right now in this moment. Holy Spirit, pry open our hearts and show us tiny little spots of drifting. I may not even want to call it disobedience, Father, but you, but you would. And remind us, remind us that you are still on your throne, whether we like it or not. Remind us that we are your children. Everything that we may be yielding to right now that we should not be yielding to right now is already defeated in your name. But right now, we need to cry out to you for help to lay those things down and cut off that source of drifting, that generational drifting, because we don't know what our life means in the grand scheme of eternity and hundreds of years from now, but you know exactly how the ripple of our lives is going to affect people that we have, that don't exist yet. You see all of that, and that's why you care so much about every single aspect of our lives, because we could not possibly understand just how much influence on human history each one of us has. We may not think we're terribly important, but you know exactly how important we are. And every single one of us is underestimating. Everyone, every single one of us sees less than you see. Because you're God and we're not. And we thank you for that. So God, right now, help us to yield to you in faith. And as hard as it is to feel the prick of Holy Spirit, as, as, as you convict, you're not jabbing us with a knife. You're putting your arm around us and saying, my son, my daughter, it's okay. I'm here. I'm the only one that can fix this. But you've got to let me fix it. You've got to yield to me. And this weekend, as we move forward in this series, God, show us the places in our lives where we're drifting and there's tiny little disobediences that are causing us to drift and God, give us the faith and the strength and the courage to lay them at your feet. That we start operating from victory, not defeat. It is not too late. It is right on time for you to do something in our lives and then to rise up in victory and shouts of praise even now even now God continue to move in this place in each heart in Jesus name stay in this place of repentance